and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on earth. I'm Christy Ruot, and I will be your host on today's episode. We will be chatting with wildlife biologist Alyssa Bohart about her research with the iconic climate change ambassador, the polar bear. She recalls her experiences from what a polar bear smells like to how scientists track where these creatures like to spend their time. I must note that Alyssa and I discovered while chatting after the show that coincidentally we went to the same high school. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into polar bear migration research as much as I did. Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times. On this week's show we have a wildlife biologist Alyssa Bohart. Welcome to the show Alyssa. Thank you. We like to start our show with what we call the icebreaker. So you can introduce yourself and how you ended up in polar life. Okay. Yeah. So um, I guess currently right now I'm working as a wildlife biologist. Um, I've kind of worked from contract to contract with different government agencies and stuff like that ever since I graduated. Um, and so I guess the research that I'd be focusing talking about today was my graduate re- research as a master's student. Um, and I worked on polar bears, which was a really awesome opportunity. And I mean, even in the contract work I'm doing now, I still get to dip into polar bear work a little bit more. Yeah. So that's kind of my background, I guess, of how I've gotten into this field. And you did your master's at the University of Alberta? Yes, correct. Um, And yeah, the University of Alberta is kind of funny because they find like, you know, you talk to people who are not from Alberta and they kind of think like, oh, polar bears, like there's no polar bears in Alberta, which is totally correct. Um, But it's interesting because I feel like um, like our most world renowned or like Canadian renowned scientists who study polar bears were always based out of the University of Alberta. And so we kind of just like have been grandfathered into this institution, which I think is like a really interesting history because you just imagine like, how did that even get started? You know, we're yeah. like a landlocked province. So, yeah. Yeah. It seems a bit, bit silly, but um, yeah, and a lot of our listeners are international, so they may not have context on, on quite how far Edmonton is from, from where the polar bears live, but uh, yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about the, populations you study and a bit about uh, your research a general background. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the population that I study is uh, the Western Hudson Bay population. Um, so that's here in Canada. And uh, for, I guess, people who may or may not be familiar, that's right by Churchill, Manitoba, which is kind of known as the polar bear capital of the world. Um, and so this area has a huge long-term data set. It's been one of the most studied populations like across the world. And so it's like really unique in that way that we have a lot of information on this population, which is pretty cool. Um, and then I guess looking specifically more at the stuff that I was researching. Um, so I was looking at their migration. Um, and so for people who may not be as familiar for polar bears, uh, so polar bears, in the southern types of populations, so not the very high Arctic, but kind of more southern parts of where they range. Um, Every year, the ice will fully melt. And so then they'll come back ashore when the ice melts, and then they'll migrate back onto the ice when the ice forms during wintertime. And so when they migrate onto the ice, that's when they're doing things like hunting and mating and stuff like that. 
Um, so the ice is like really, really important for bears and their kind of basic survival. Um, yeah. And so I was interested to see their migrations onto and off of the ice and just to see if things are kind of changing with climate change, since we know that polar bears are so intrinsic with the ice. Um, so yeah, I just kind of wanted to investigate, like classify their migration movements and see how things are changing, what influences their migration, because that might kind of give us clues into how we can predict future changes with climate change and stuff like that. Cool. So you make it sound like the polar bears probably spend much of their life at sea. Do you have an idea of kind of like what percentage of their life they spend on ice versus land? I don't have like a specific percentage, but I guess to put it into perspective, so within Hudson Bay, the bears will typically go onto the ice in November and then they don't come back ashore until maybe like August or so. Um, so there's only okay. really like September and October, maybe like three or four months that they're spending on land. Like the rest of the time is essentially on the ice where they can actually hunt and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so they really depend on the ice. And I like to say it's very confusing, I think, uh, for people who are more familiar with like uh, hibernating bear species, like grizzly bears or black bears, because we always think of these bears like they always go and sleep like during the winter whereas polar bears like thrive in the winter time. And so it kind of like, you have to almost like change your way of thinking because they're almost opposites of the other North American bears, which is really interesting about them. Yeah. We almost imagine that they're suffering through the winter, you know, like they're, they're so far North and so cold. And I think we kind of put ourselves in their, our, their shoes and imagine yeah, that it's really totally. tough, but. Yeah. Yeah. They thrive in it. But uh, like, yeah, I don't know about you, but like I would I would hate living that life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't sound perfectly ideal. <laughs> so um, you say that they thrive. I'm kind of wondering what do they come to shore for then? So honestly, like they only come ashore because they have to. It's just because the ice fully disappears. Like they can't tread water forever. Right. And so they mm -hmm. are forced to shore, essentially. Like if um, if the polar bears had access to ice, they'd always be out on the ice pretty much. OK. Yeah. Because when we look at our more northern populations who have ice year round, like they can stay on the ice. Like they might not access seals like the same amount because seals. Uh, the seals are doing things at different times of the year up there as well. But those bears don't really come to land unless they have to. Okay. So, you know, I've heard in places like Svalbard, they're, you know, polar bears in the summer, especially will eat like just about anything when they can't get seals and they'll, you know, they'll eat reindeer and, and that kind of thing. Is that true of, of the populations that you looked at as well? Yeah. Um, so I, I think like inherently they're a bear, right? And so bears are kind of known for being omnivorous. Polar bears are a little bit more special in like their body makeup because they're more specialized on only eating meat and fat. They really thrive on eating fat. Whereas the other bears, they kind of just want to eat a variety of everything, right? But that being said, like they're hungry when they don't have access to seals, right? So they're going to eat what they can find. Um, and another thing, I guess, that we're seeing because of climate change and more time spent on land and more like they're a little bit more hungry, we're actually seeing more polar bears coming into like human settlements. So like where people live near polar bears, polar bears are more coming into those towns and 
creating problems. Um, and so in certain areas, they might have their dumps, right? And so bears are going to start scavenging in the dumps and stuff like that. So uh, we have kind of those situations within Hudson Bay. I know that I believe polar bears have also been recorded to be eating uh, goose eggs. So they'll eat uh, bird eggs when they can get their paws on that kind of stuff. Like they might get into garbage. Churchill's been really good about um, having programs to not allow bears to get into garbage. So they don't really have that issue in that community. Um, Other areas in some populations in Alaska, they actually get to kind of scavenge on whales from like subsistent hunts of like indigenous people up in those communities. And so that's also like another scavenging opportunity for bears there. And I mean, uh, like some populations even eat like uh, beluga whales and stuff like that. Like it's not a common thing that they're eating, but it's like they can hunt them, which I think is really cool. Yeah. They are clearly a bit more adaptive than we imagine with them just eating seals. Totally. Um, But I guess, like, I should point out, though, that, uh, like, some people kind of, I guess, like, in the media, sometimes you see, like, polar bears are adapting, like, eating more things. But I think what gets lost in that is they really are specialized for fat. And so these other food sources, like goose eggs and stuff like that, is not providing them the amount of energy and stuff that they'll need to survive long term. So it can maybe like tie them over for the time being, but it's not going to be an energy source to replace seals by any means. Right. Okay. So your research looked at, like you said, the, the migration dynamics of these polar bears. Can you tell us what are the main effects of climate change and what were the findings, main findings of your research? Yeah, um, so I looked at kind of a different a variety of different types of um, things that might affect their migration. So I looked at some environmental stuff like ice concentration. So how thick is the ice for the bears? Also looked at things like wind. Um, and then I was also looking at things like uh, for females, like how many cubs do they have? Does that affect their ability to move on the ice and migrate? Um, also, like how how fat are the bears? Does that affect their migration? And um, what are the age of the bears and stuff like that? And so what I really found was that um, ice concentration and wind seemed to really affect their movement, whereas the other factors didn't really affect their movement as much. Like there wasn't differences between the bears depending on those things. And so I guess like more specifically uh, with ice concentration, I found that Um, bears that are on thinner ice, it usually resulted in them either moving larger distances or having to move faster. And so I think in the context of climate change, we know that it's predicted that ice concentration is just going to continue to decline. And so if we know that bears are moving more, then they're expending more energy on on the thin ice. Um, And so then I think what's probably going to happen for those bears is they're not going to be able to fatten up on seals even though they're exhibit like they're spending this more more energy and they're not able to kind of fill that quota of energy on seals and so I think what we're going to have is bears that are more nutritionally stressed they'll probably be in worse body condition and then we might see things like they're not reproducing cubs as much because they can't get fat enough and you know those types of uh, kind of like doomsday mm-hmm. scenarios for these populations. So when you say ice concentration, do you mean the concentration of the sea that's covered by ice or is concentration actually related to its, the ice thickness? 
It's more so related to the ice thickness. So this is a measurement that the Na National Snow and Ice Data Center in the U.S., uh, they do all of this kind of like satellite data gathering for these types of measurements. So basically what it is, is it's telling you it, it works on a percentage basis, right? And so like 100% is like the thickest the ice will get. Whereas like 0% is water, essentially, like liquid, I guess you can think of it, right? Okay. Um, and so that, yeah, that's what ice concentration is. Okay. So you found sea ice concentration and wind. Uh, I'm particularly interested in, in wind because in my research, I looked at like how wind is really tough to predict in, in climate modeling and lots of models say it's going to increase and lots say it's going to decrease. So we actually have a hard time you know, depending on where you are on earth, predicting exactly what will happen with wind. So can you explain how wind affected your migration and what you think might happen with climate change? Yeah, so I think, um, I think we're kind of in the same boat where we don't know exactly what's going to happen because like you said, wind's kind of like an unpredictable variable. Um, and I can say within our population, I think there's only been like a handful of studies that ever looked at the effect of wind on bears. So this is actually pretty new, I would say, within like the polar bear world. Um, and so uh, the stuff that I was looking at was like the wind speed and the wind direction. And so uh, with wind speed, uh, I found that higher wind speed was related to earlier departures onto the ice when they're migrating onto ice. But I think what's actually is happening there is the ice is like facilitating uh, moving the ice that forms like uh, more north in the Hudson Bay. And so the wind is pushing that ice down towards the bears. And so that's how mm -hmm. they can get onto the ice sooner. But that being said, um, with, I guess, like the modeling that we've seen of higher wind speeds, even if the wind speed is higher, if the ice isn't forming, it's not going to be pushing that ice anymore, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it, it might not be so much that the ice is causing the bears to move, but it's like more like that relationship, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, wind direction is kind of, <laughs> it's kind of hard to know, like the bears kind of, um, they move with certain wind directions, but uh, it was kind of unclear of whether like that's just like an artifact of like again the wind is moving the ice a certain way and yeah. so therefore the bears are moving that way so yeah. it's kind of yeah like it's a little bit kind of tricky and confusing because we still kind of have to tease apart those kind of um th those I guess like more little finer scale kind of details that we also don't really know that much about yet and I'm wondering your wind data was it how did you get your wind data like how do you know what the wind is like where your polar bears are? Yeah, so that's also a great question. Um, so again, I got the data from, and I can't remember the exact website, but it was, it was in association with the US government and their um, data sets again. And I'm trying to remember how fine scale the data was, um, but it was, it was something I think within maybe like a kilometer or so. And so it's like relatively fine scale for where the bears are. So that was, I guess, like the kind of data, like it's like that fine of scale data. And I think it was estimates, like one estimate a day, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I would say like compared to some environmental data, it's pretty good data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, I think so often when we look at wind data, you need it on like a very small scale and a very short timeline. But I can imagine when you're looking at sea ice, you're yeah, looking at more of these like large scale movements of where the ice might move 
due to wind and yeah it doesn't need to be that fine grained yeah totally and like bears go all across Hudson Bay and it's incredible like the amount of movement that they do compared to other species yeah like just huge (laughs) yeah and what about temperature I assume it's warmed where these polar bears lived is that like can you see that correlation yet or is that not yet apparent yeah within our within Hudson Bay I should say like we don't have temperature data out on the sea ice. Um, And so that I think is a little bit of a struggle in our study area, because we're pretty limited with uh, just a few weather stations are able to get the temperatures, right? Um, So we don't have that fine scale of temperature data. What we typically kind of look at, I guess, that's related to temperature within our system is like the ice breakup and the ice freeze update, because we know that those are related to temperature directly, right? Um, So those are kind of, I guess, like our Uh, proxies for temperature measurements Um, and so within my study which was like 2004 to 2016 it was kind of just all over the place like bumpiness we didn't really see a linear trend of increasing or decreasing so much but we do have data from like 1980 all the way to present day within Hudson Bay and so if you look over like that amount of data we can see that the temperatures are increasing and um, you even see like the ice breakup becomes earlier and the ice freeze up becomes later. And so we know that bears are spending less time on ice. Um, right. Over that yeah. So kind of coming to what your, your research found, you, you found that there is no major change in the migration dynamics of the bears within that time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. And so I can say like that surprised the heck out of me because, you know, you think like you always hear about how things are so dire for bears and stuff like that. Right. And so I thought, okay, for sure, we're going to see something here. Um, And so, yeah, I was quite surprised to see that there wasn't that effect. Um, But what we're kind of um, like another paper that's published kind of environmental data within Hudson Bay at that same time frame found Hudson Bay has been relatively stable within that time frame. Um, but okay. I can, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit weird, I guess, in a sense, because we thought um, over the time, we're just going to continually see like this decline in Hudson Bay. But I think what it really demonstrates is this importance to keep monitoring long term, because I kind of wonder, like, is this too short of a time frame to detect a change? Because like, if you go through our data set from like 1980 to present day, if you chose like a number of like 10 years throughout that time, we might not see that change, right? But it's like, once you have the full picture of this data, we can see that this change is happening. And so mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if like my data set is just kind of too, too short of a time frame. And so I think it's really important that we keep monitoring to see if things are still declining long-term. Cool. Yeah, I, it kind of, I mean, it sounds like most climate research, which, you know, you kind of look back in the seventies and think like, how didn't, why, like this should have been so obvious, but you, like you said, like if you're, if you were only looking at short time frames and data was a lot more sparse then, then it, it wouldn't have been quite so, quite so clear, but um, on the note of, so, cause your data set is, is about, you know, just over a decade. I'm wondering, did you, attempt to find traditional knowledge of how many polar bears were there before or, you know, when they would have come and left from the shoreline, maybe, you know, like from people who, who lived near Churchill or, or like near those 
those populations? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I guess I can say, uh, I guess two parts to that. I guess more from the science perspective, first off, we do have data, um, movement data that does span from like, I think the early 90s to like present day. And so the reason that I didn't use that old data is because that old data only gave us um, like one location every couple days, sometimes every eight days, whereas the data that I used for this analysis were every four hours. And so like you can imagine like every four hours is a lot more accurate of movement and migration data than one location like every few days. Um, and so yeah. to me, it wasn't, it, I, I guess I also didn't anticipate that I wouldn't detect a change, right? Um, but other, yeah. like other papers have looked at uh, like the early 90s data compared to early 2000s, and they have seen that they're departing land like um, later on and they're coming ashore like earlier on. And so that has happened within Western Hudson Bay. Um, it's just not within the time frame that I've looked at it. Um, regarding right. traditional ecological knowledge, I'm not as familiar of what kind of I guess, collaborations have been done in the past within Churchill. Um, I know that PEK is a little bit more integrated into polar bear management within different territories, like Nunavut, I think, does a really great job of incorporating PEK. And I'm, I'm just not as familiar, honestly, with uh, Churchill, but I think it would be really interesting to see it be collaborative, more collaborative with traditional ecological knowledge, because that knowledge is also like a very important way of knowing an ecosystem as well. You know, um, as Southern researchers, we're not up there living all the time, right? And those people are there, they have this knowledge for way longer than we've been there, you know? And so I think uh, all this extra knowledge can only contribute to um, understanding these animals more. Yeah, it seems like it could be, you know, just like this really nice piece of data that would extend a lot of our studies when, especially when, because I, I imagine, you know, like a lot of, there would be a lot of knowledge on when the polar bears were ashore just because of, for hunting reasons. And, you know, it seems like it would be something that would have been fairly tracked and, and there would be pretty preserved knowledge of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, even just like polar bears coming into town, right? It's like the people who live there got to know when bears are coming into town because yeah, exactly. that, that can have bad consequences, right? Yeah. Yeah, it always would have been a special day when a bear rolls into town. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit about how your your polar bears were tracked. Yeah. You talk about uh, this, like their color data. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think arguably kind of the most exciting part of graduate research was being able to go into the field to get the data for bears. So the general process, I guess, that our, our research group does is we go out to our field sites um, and then we basically go up in a helicopter and we're basically flying around to find bears. So two times of the year that we typically do this is the fall or the spring. And so in the fall, that's when there's no snow and all the bears are on shore. And so it's just like easy, like you can just find bears all the time. Sometimes you're catching like 20 bears a day and stuff like that. Unfortunately, I didn't get to do that very, very exciting time. Um, but like it's equally exciting going in the spring. And that's when you're actually out on the sea ice. And so you actually get to see the bears and their elements and you get to see seals and 
like we even got to see a walrus which was like really cool to see like out in the wild you know mm-hmm. um and so that's really cool because then we're just looking in the snow for polar bear tracks and so once we find a fresh set of tracks then we're basically just following in the helicopter until we find a bear so yeah like we immobilize the bears um and then once we're down there we'll fit them with a collar and so then the collar will transmit yeah like every four hours to give us a location of the bear and kind of i guess like a general rule in biology is like all of this field work is so expensive and so basically you want to collect as much data as possible to kind of, I guess, make it worth it, you know? And so even though I was only interested in movement data, like we're also collecting things like their DNA. So we know how the bears are related to each other. We also collect a tooth, which like allows us to age the bears, just like rings on a tree. We can do that in mammals, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then we take like, you know, like fat and stuff like that, see how healthy the kind of the bears are doing. And yeah, we'll take like hair for element analysis, you know, and yeah. So it's really great that we have this long-term data because you can answer so many questions, which is just really, really incredible to have um, like one of those long data sets because it's not all that common in biology, especially if the money's not there to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I can't, can you, uh, can you tell us about, so like you got to actually touch a polar bear? Yeah, Uh, I got. (laughs) Like, are they as large as you imagine? Or, you know, like, I think I kind of imagine a, a black bear when I think of a polar bear, even though, you know, you go to a museum and you see they're like, I don't know, like three times bigger or something. But can you describe like what it's like? Totally. Um, yeah. So the bears, like I got to uh, touch five bears because, of course, I kept a tally of it. Because um, it was all, <laughs> every bear is very exciting, right? Um, and so our first few bears were actually quite small because they were subadult bears. Um, And so these bears were actually getting like an ear tag that transmits a GPS location. And that's because collars, we we want to make sure like the well-being of the animal is good. And so with a sub-adult, they might grow into the collar. So that's why we give them an ear tag just to to keep things safe. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I got these sub-adult bears and they were actually like the size of like a small grizzly bear. Like they weren't actually that big. Um, but then like we got some big male bears and these bears are massive. Like these are the ones that you think about when you think of polar bears, they're just absolutely massive. And just to give you, I guess, like, I guess context, um, one of these bears, like I spotted when we were up in the helicopter, we spotted this big, big bear. And so once we got closer to it in the helicopter to try and see if we could dart it or not, um, the thing, like it just stood there staring back at us, like just like no care in the world, like wasn't afraid of the helicopter at all. And I think it's just like these big male polar bears just know they're the biggest, baddest thing on the ice. And so nothing, yeah. them, which is just incredible because yeah, it is like females and like the the sub-adult males are they just run they run like mad like when the helicopter's there but it's like the big males they just don't care because they just know they're like top of the food chain out there on the ice and it's just like that's wild yeah it's uh yeah it was pretty cool um and then the other thing I guess that maybe is interesting to people I'm not sure I was really curious what does the polar bear smell like and so then I gave it a smell and to me it just smelled kind of like wet dog honestly <laughs> yeah. oh that's funny I guess it makes sense because they're you know they get wet you can't really clean off 
Totally. Yeah. And I can also say that uh, like when we would touch around their mouths for like the tooth and stuff like that, like if they had any seal, like if they just were like on a seal kill or something like that, like you would just reek a fish like for the whole next couple days. Like it's just amazing, like how their mouths are so smelly and seals like a smell like fish, which I guess is not really a surprise either since they're eating fish too. Yeah. And then their fur must be, you know, like it must because it, I guess it acts a bit like a dry suit. Is it, does it feel repellent? It feels, I guess, like to me, I guess the best describer for description of how it felt was, it was just really rough. Like, you know, it wasn't soft at all. Like, I think it's just like, I think of like, you know, when you pet like a long haired dog or something like that, like it feels really nice. Right. But mm-hmm. like a polar bear doesn't, doesn't feel like that. They feel really scraggly and rough. Um, and it didn't really feel like, I guess I would think like it would feel kind of oily and smooth, like on the, on the fur. Yeah. But it didn't really feel like that either, honestly. Um, mm. yeah. So I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Uh, one cool thing though, a friend, uh, one of my lab mates told me is that, uh, one time she was in the field and her hands were getting cold. And so then she thought, oh, if I put it like in the polar bear's armpits, then it'll warm up my hands. And what she found was that it actually didn't warm it up at all. But that is like, basically what that shows is that like their fur is so insulative that they're not mm-hmm. losing like at all. And I was like, that's what an incredible adaptation, you know? Like, yeah. It's, it's amazing how, how built they are for the Arctic. Yeah, that's really cool. I've, I've heard if a polar bear is getting too close to a community and they need to chase it out of town, they, you know, when they take a helicopter and, and, kind of chase them but they have to be really careful that they they don't chase them too fast because they can overheat so easily and it must be just that they they retain their heat so so well so you know if it's if it's five degrees out and they're running then they they just overheat like wildly quickly yeah yeah that totally makes sense yeah they're just like they're so built for the arctic it's just it's really Mm -hmm. incredible to see like such specialized animals yeah yeah i would have imagined they you know, feel nice and cozy and warm, but (laughs) I guess they're, they're keeping it all in. We often have, I think the general public has this image of how all the polar bears are dying in the North. And, you know, this, this picture that we've seen on National Geographic of, of this polar bear who's, you know, just, scraggly and all skinny and and dying and it's on this tiny little piece of ice is that the image that is really going on up there or what do you think is kind of the reality of polar bears in the arctic at the moment due to climate change uh yeah so i think the media does a good job i guess of marketing polar bears as an icon for climate change and so i would say polar bears are essentially an umbrella species for climate change, right? Um, we know we know that bears are basically, their livelihood is on the ice. And so we know with climate change, the ice is gonna disappear. And with that, we know we're gonna, um, we're gonna lose polar bears with that. And so I think it is accurate to say that polar bears are gonna be lost to climate change. Although I would say the, the media does make it seem that it's much more dire right now than it is. Um, we do see obviously polar bears that are lost from starving and stuff like that. We have seen these declines in certain populations. 
some populations are stable. Um, so a good website to check out is uh, Polar Bears International, which kind of breaks down each population to see how they're doing. Um, and you know what? Some of our populations in the world, we actually don't have much data on at all. And so we don't know how they're doing. We don't know. We don't have those baseline old data to compare to. But we do know some populations are in decline. With that being said, though, I will say that once we start seeing the declines in polar bears, like at a, an alarming rate, it's going to be too late for polar bears. Like we're not going to be able to reverse climate change at that point. Um, so I think even though the media might be exaggerating that message a little bit, I think it's really important because we need to act now or else by the time we start seeing polar bears lost, it's going to be too late for them. Yeah, I think that's a really good message. And my main concern when I, you know, that I sometimes you hear the media perhaps exaggerating some components of of climate change that the public doesn't really have access to, you know, what's really going on. And my main concern with that is that that it makes people polarized on the topic, uh, no pun intended, but the, you know, that it, it makes us if, you know, like we don't want our population to not believe scientists. And, and so I think it's really important that the media is portraying what's really going on and, and not exaggerating it. And I, yeah, I have concerns about how sometimes I, like, I think polar bears are, like you said, a, a really strong icon for climate change and, and it's, you know, we're already acting too late. So it's, it's important that we have this icon, but it does seem a bit concerning that, it's, it's almost treated as a bit, it's like a bit of an alarmist approach to education with just using these really extreme examples where, like you say, there are lots of populations that are still stable. Um, and maybe if we had a, a bit, you know, I think science is generally uh, not as polarized as the media portrays it to be, you know, like the media often latches onto these, you know, extreme examples because they're more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can say, like, for instance, I think the famous polar bear photo that came out where it was just uh, like a starved bear, uh, basically skin and bones. Um, a lot of researchers I know that were asked about that question, like from the media. Um, the thing is, like, a scientist will always say, like, you don't know what the cause of that specific bear was, you know, like, we really think, um, like, cause and effect, like, we want the actual, I guess, like, the facts and the data um, whereas the media, again, they're they're pretty quick to kind of jump onto the stories and to use that for their own kind of messages and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, like I think it's always best to listen to scientists because we are the ones who do know what's going on. I think it's also really important to listen to people who live in these communities who are seeing more and more bears coming to town, creating problems for them because it's a lot more dire for them as well. Um, because they have to deal with uh, the other types of things that are happening with polar bears being affected by climate change, not just or bears dying, but the fact that there's going to be more human wildlife conflict for those communities as well. Mm -hmm. So if you could, you know, redo your research and have a, have a data set that perhaps doesn't exist, what would be the perfect data set that you'd want to look at to have a complete picture? Uh, yeah, so I think I, I would really value having that good um, movement data for the bears uh, back in like the 90s and stuff like that, um, being able to compare it to the data that we have now. Uh, one really important missing piece, I would say, in Hudson Bay, um, current day, I guess uh, I could say, um, is that we don't really have a lot of data on the field. 
And so uh, we know that bears really depend on the seals and it would be really great to know what are the seal numbers, where are the seals kind of hanging out in relation to polar bears and kind of uh, that missing piece of um, information I think would really kind of uh, complete the picture of polar bears in Hudson Bay and what we can anticipate uh, for future changes due to climate change. Great. Okay, I think that brings us to our segment that we like to call the Polar Plug. So this is a chance for you to speak somewhat uninterrupted about uh, anything that you please, anything that you'd like to tell our, our listeners. Yeah, so I think um, I'd just like to share, I guess, information that I think uh, the general public is maybe not as familiar with, uh, with polar bears regarding polar bears. Um, and this is something that I guess I learned while doing a literature review and uh, seeing like a lot of different papers and different research. But uh, all of the countries that have polar bears within them and their jurisdictions are under a legal agreement called the International Polar Bear Agreement. Um, and so what this basically does is it kind of binds these countries to be obligated to uh, conserve the species and to kind of um, put in these protocols to conserve the species. And so Canada, I think, has a really important role to play um, within this organization because Canada is home to 13 of the 19 global populations. Um, and so we have most of the bears within our jurisdiction. And so I think these next coming years are going to be really important for us to actually um, put in good management and different types of strategies to um, really help conserve bears within our jurisdiction. Cool. Thank you so much for that. And with that, I think that ends another episode of Polar Times. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alyssa. Yeah, thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to Polar Times on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to contact us with any feedback, we'd welcome you to email us at thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. And you can also contact Apex on Twitter at polar underscore research. Thanks again to Alyssa, our guest on today's show. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.